our new series, which is going to go on for the summer, and we're calling this summer the Summer of Seoul. The Summer of Seoul. That's not like Seoul, South Korea. It's uh, Seoul is in part of your triune being. We want to talk about creativity. We want to talk about connection. We want to talk about conflict. We want to talk about your uh, will, your emotions. We want to talk about your relationships. We want to talk about this as a family. We want to be as practical as we can. And uh, the theme text for our series is 3 John 1, verse 2, where the apostle says, Beloved, I pray that you would be in good health and prosper even as your soul prospers. And we would like you to live a prosperous life in every area. And one of the first places that prosperity must affect is actually not your finances, but it's your soul. If you have an abundance of joy and peace, if you have goodwill in your relationships, if you have creativity that's inspiring you to new heights and depths, if you know how to resolve conflict because life is full of conflict, then you will be prosperous in soul and that prosperity will affect every other area of your life. So we're going to hopefully take things in a, in a relaxed and practical direction as we examine texts that help us uh, develop prosperity of soul. Uh, emotional maturity is one of the most needed and most lacking things in our world today. I think emotional maturity in previous generations and in previous times was more required of us, and therefore we developed it out of necessity. And I think in the abundance and the luxury of our modern world, we've been able to get away with some emotional immaturity. And I don't speak that as a judgment. I speak that about myself uh, because there are many things about life that uh, keep me underdeveloped in my soul. Like, for example, the fact that if I am tired and I want to eat, I can go through a drive through where a 16-year-old will make me something delicious in like 30 seconds. <laughs> so I never develop the emotional maturity to hold off from shoving food in my face long enough to make myself something delicious, I expect a 16-year-old to do it for me. And then when it comes out wrong, I get angry at them, and I'm like, I can't believe it. They forgot my second helping of fries. Can you believe that? I spent 30 extra cents for my big fries, and they only gave me a medium. And that would be, in my life, a form of emotional immaturity. And we can develop a prosperity of soul that makes us capable of living in the world with an abundance of joy and peace. Wouldn't it be amazing if you had so much joy and peace that it actually spilled off of your life into other people's lives by accident? You didn't just have to talk about the theory of joy and peace, but you felt that way. I believe that's available to us, and it's something that we develop as we grow in maturity. So, this morning, we're going to talk about creativity. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. It's our lectionary text. My sermon is entitled, Spirit on the Water. It's one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. Matt White told me, when I put the slide up, I said, my sermon is entitled, Spirit on the Water. He's like, why didn't you call it Smoke on the Water? And I was like, that would have been so much better. <laughs> but then you guys would have thought I was talking about the end times, right? Smoke on the water, fire in the sky. Right? That's definitely a Revelation sermon. That doesn't, that doesn't work on Father's Day. So... 
Spirit on the Water is one of my favorite Dylan tunes. It's actually a later Dylan tune. It came out in about 2005. And uh, he sings. I'm not going to try to do his voice because I can't. It's just embarrassing. But he sings, Spirit on the Water, Darkness on the Face of the Deep. I keep on loving you, baby, and I can't hardly sleep. And he does this thing where he connects the idea of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters at creation with his love for his beloved. And he's singing about her, but he's singing about Genesis at the same time. And I think it's a really beautiful picture, and I'm going to lean on it a little bit. And um, it might get a little weird this morning, uh, which it never does with me. Um, I want you to know that we're going to read a lot of texts, and we're going to read them a little differently. And if we're reading them in a way that's different than the way you understand them, I'm not saying that my way is right or the only way. I'm saying... This is maybe another way of exploring the scriptures and what they mean to us as people. So, the first thing I want to talk to you about is Adventures in Odyssey. How many of you have heard of Adventures in Odyssey? When I was a kid, it was like, they were radio dramas, for those of you that don't know. They were radio dramas, Christian radio dramas, put on by Focus on the Family, before that organization got way more controversial. <laughs> they would put on these radio dramas for kids, and, and I think they still do. They would come on on like Tuesday nights on the radio, and, and then you could buy these collections at the Christian bookstore. And they followed the adventures of a guy named John Avery Whitaker, who made both an ice cream shop and this machine called the Imagination Station that was basically a cross between a time machine and a phone booth and like uh, a flanograph. And these kids would be able to get in this box and then it would take them back in time to Bible stories and they would get to live through these Bible stories. And it was the most amazing thing. And I grew to love stories. I, I grew to love uh, car rides, long journeys, because we would, we would measure our trip and how many adventures in Odyssey stories we could listen to. And I didn't know that the word Odyssey had a greater historical significance, right? Homer's The Odyssey is one of the most famous stories of all time. And it's about a man who leaves his home, his Greek home, and he goes on these adventures because he is uh, drawn by the muses. And he eventually, through great hardship and suffering and war and tragedy and triumph, he brings back a golden fleece. And he, through shipwreck, arrives on the shores of the very place he left. Only now, after his whole adventure is over, he's brought back for his people the reward of his journey. And I, I think about this story which I have not read, but I intend to, because it's like a really long poem. I think about the Odyssey, and I think about the adventures in Odyssey that I used to listen to, and I think about our love of stories and our need to tell ourselves a story, not just to be entertained by a story, but our need to frame our lives into a certain narrative that has a certain outcome. And it's really difficult for us, and I genuinely believe this is one of the sources of people's brokenness, is when they go through things, good or bad, when they can't frame what they've experienced into the context of a story, their life seems to lose meaning and purpose and hope. A book that was really helpful for me in this was a book by a guy named Viktor Frankl. He was a Jewish psychologist who was imprisoned in the concentration camps in World War II. And one of the things he observed in this very tragic human experiment was that some people who ended up in the concentration camps were broken by the experience. Some of them became very bitter. Some of them became very desperate. Some of them became very 
unhuman. And then others of them seemed to, thrive isn't the right word, but they seemed to come through the concentration camps and all the beautiful things about humanity seemed to move only closer to the surface. They became more generous and more hospitable. He said that he saw in the most bleak of human conditions, he saw men sharing the scraps of bread they had to survive, breaking off the crust and giving it to someone else because even though they did not have enough, they wanted to make sure they cared for their fellow man, their fellow woman. And he asked himself this question, how do some people go through the concentration camps and seemingly become more godly, more holy, more hopeful? And other people go through the same circumstances and they become more broken and more anti-human and more desperate and more dysfunctional. Have you ever wondered that? Not about maybe the concentration camps, but just about circumstances in humanity. Some people, they go through tragedy and it breaks them, totally destroys them. Other people go through tragedy and it seems to make them even more amazing. Have you ever wondered why that is? His proposal, and I think he's right, is that if we can find in our experiences a story that gives us meaning, if we can find an explanation that doesn't just make sense of the facts, but frames a purpose for our experiences and gives us a direction for the future, then we can become even more of ourselves in even the worst conditions. A few weeks ago, I talked about some of the men who were imprisoned in the Japanese concentration camps. And one of them who was found, they asked him, they, sa they said to him, you must, have, you must have woken up every day thinking, today is the day I'm going to be rescued. He said, no. I thought the opposite. I thought, I'll never be rescued, so I'm going to make the best possible life here in this camp. He said, the people who thought tomorrow is the day I'm going to be rescued faced disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, and it broke them again and again and again. I reconciled with the fact that this is my reality, and I learned to bring the best of life out of it. Which, I read that and I was like, that dude is way better than me. <laughs> like, I think I'm virtuous, right? And then you read about someone who's truly virtuous, and you're like, forget it. I'm learning how to be human all over again. But we're on this journey, and we're on this journey to frame our lives with a sense of meaning so that we have purpose, so that we can understand our past, and so that we're, we can know where we're going into the future. And we're facing moments that are inc incredibly rewarding, like a marriage, like a birth of a child, like a new job, like a breakthrough in our family, a breakthrough in our finances, and we feel a great sense of victory. And then we face hardships and setbacks. But those only really destroy us when they seem meaningless, when they seem purposeless, when they don't fit in the context of where we're going and what we're doing and how we understand ourselves and how we understand what God is bringing us through. So for my own life, the thing that I am constantly aware of and the thing that, that wakes me up early in the morning and keeps me up late at night, it's not the only thing, but it's one of the things, is that I want to be a writer. I love to write. I love to be alone looking at a wall 
with a piece of paper or a laptop in front of me. I love typing or scribbling for hours at a time. It brings me great joy. It always has. When I was like five years old, I wrote my first story, and it was about Batman and the Joker, and it was oddly similar to the version of Jingle Bells that talks about how Batman smells. But anyway, <laughs> it was about a page long, and my mom framed it, and I remember feeling like at four years old, so proud of this story that I had written. And then I remember when dad got his first laptop, one day he let me sit on this laptop and type out my own story. And I wasn't allowed to watch very many movies, especially not secular movies, but I had seen a poster for Indiana Jones. And so in my mind, I began to fictionalize a story about an adventurer who wore a hat. I didn't even know what his name was, but I had seen the poster with the hat and the whip, and I thought, I'm going to write a story about that. And then I ended up spending about 45 minutes just trying to choose a good font. <laughs> but I mean, I was like seven, right? And that doesn't happen to me anymore. It totally does. <laughs> Anyone who's done any writing whatsoever is like, I need to type this out, but the letters don't look quite right. Let me just, hmm. And then like an hour goes by, and you're like, I haven't done anything. I get it. But our story, whatever story we tell ourselves and whatever desire we have for our life, it's framed in a bigger story. And one of the things that struck me recently that I just can't get over is the idea that Jesus had a sense of purpose and meaning about what he did with his life. I used to think that the story of Jesus was largely irrelevant to my life. His teaching was relevant, his death and resurrection were relevant. But how he understood himself and what he was trying to do largely had no effect on me. He was God. He was in God mode. But now I realize that Jesus had his own understanding of his own life and his own sense of meaning and purpose. And I believe it's best articulated in Revelation when the angel tells John, write this down. John chapter 21, verse 5. He says, write this down, for these words are faithful and true. Meaning, they're always going to last and they're always going to be the most real. Jesus speaks and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. This isn't just what Jesus wants to do at the end of time. This is Jesus' sense of meaning about how he lives and what he is living for. If you think about Jesus as the origin of new creation, this makes sense of a lot of what is happening in the Gospels. Like, for example, there's a weird story where Jesus meets a man born blind. And now Jesus, we've seen Jesus do miracles, right? But instead of just saying, be healed, maybe laying his hands on his shoulder and praying, Jesus spits in the mud. Does anyone remember this? He spits in the mud. He makes a paste. He rubs it on the dude's eyes. He tells him to go wash off. And then the man can see. This made no sense to me. I thought he was just trying to see what he could get away with, right? Like, I'm going to heal this dude that's deaf with a wet willy. <laughs> He's not doing that. That's not what Jesus is after. He's not just after shock value. Jesus is prophetically enacting new creation. Because in the Genesis account, God made Adam out of the dust of the earth. The word Adam, Adam, means from the ground, from the dirt. He makes this dust man and he breathes life into him. 
So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying, I have the power to bring about new creation. You were born with eyes that don't work, but I, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, can reach into the same dirt that formed Adam, and I can make new eyes for you. My friend Kainoa was ministering in the Philippines all by himself. He felt like the Lord called him to go to the Philippines, so he bought a ticket and flew there with no plan, no agenda, no book table, no churches lined up. He was in a park where hundreds, if not thousands, of homeless and disenfranchised people lived. And he met a woman, and she said, I might be telling a few of these details wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've got 95% of them right. So I'll have to ask him about this part later. But she said to him, can you pray for my husband? He's blind. My friend Kainoa operates in the gift of healing. He's not at all discouraged by this. He's seen blind eyes open. So he says, sure, let's go pray for your husband. So they go further into the park and they meet this man. And when they meet him, he opens his eyes and he has no eyeballs in either of his eye sockets. They're empty. He keeps his eyelids closed and they look deflated. Immediately, Kainoa, who has seen people's blind eyes open, has zero faith. Zero faith for this miracle. Because there's no eyeballs there. But what needs to happen is an act of new creation. And he decides to act faithfully because he knows that God is real and God is true. And so he just puts his hand on the guy's shoulder. I think he actually put his hands on the eyelids. I apologize. He, put it, he did put his hands on these soft eyelids. And he said, well, God, like the simplest, humblest prayer. Well, God, I invite you to heal this man who has no eyes. He said the man felt like he was blown backwards. And when he opened his eyes... I can tell that some of you are not even going to believe me. When he opened his eyes, there were two white eyeballs with no irises and pupils. You know, like, <laughs> you know, like in a horror movie when somebody's eyes roll back in their head and all it is is just white? That's what it looked like. And he's looking at this guy with white eyeballs, no eyes, just eyeballs. And he says, well, Jesus, just finish the job. Now, I, I have to... I have to pause here and say this. When he told me the story, he's telling me his story. And he either had, like, I, I knew when he was telling me the story that he was telling me God's honest truth. There was no showmanship, no manipulation in him. He's telling me, he says, and I'm like in tears as he's telling me. He says, I watched as though an invisible paintbrush began coloring in the irises of this man's eyes. And at the very end, he said, I saw blue irises and a white space where the pupil would be. And then it was like at the same time, the paintbrush went boop, and he went like this, and his eyes were perfectly formed. And he could see. This isn't the best part of the story. <laughs> the best part of the story is that the first thing he says, because remember, his wife led Kainoa to him. He says, I've always known you were beautiful, but now I can see it with my eyes. 
You see, there are miracles of creation where God can bring about something that didn't exist in the universe before. But then there's the difference, which is new creation, where the substance of heaven becomes the substance of earth. The miracle of this man getting his eyes back is a profound miracle. But the miracle of new creation is that God did it because he loves this man, and God did it because this man loves his wife. And now, even though he's always known she's beautiful, he can see it with his eyes. See, when Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new, he's really talking about bringing heaven to earth. He's talking about bringing the reality of God into the substance reality of our existence. Heaven is not some far off place we get to go when we die. Heaven is a dimension or an understanding of how our world works here and now that is somehow beyond us and yet before us. That we only get glimpses of when we see a miracle or when we see a family reunited at the airport or when we hear the words, I forgive you. We get a moment where heaven, the feeling and the reality of an, of an existence we know is possible, but yet it's somehow still beyond us, that becomes our world and our reality. And it doesn't take faith anymore because it's right there in front of us. This is what gives Jesus meaning and purpose. This is the story that Jesus finds himself in, and we find ourselves inside of Jesus' story as his followers. This means that everything we do, if, if what I'm saying to you is true, then what I, really the heart of everything I want to tell you today is this. Your life and mine has a particular calling and purpose. And whatever that calling and purpose is, it's to participate with Jesus in bringing about new creation on the earth. God is not done with our reality. He has a dream and a vision for what this world could be. And he brings about heaven on earth through people who are willing to partner with him by being creative with the same spirit of creativity that he has. The spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of Jesus, is inherently creative. Now when I talk about creativity, immediately y'all are thinking of like, Art classes, right? I'm thinking about my art teacher, who I will leave nameless, who would stay after class and tell me all these weird stories that made me uncomfortable, and she kind of like nodded her head back and forth, and I'm like trying to get this painting right just so that I can escape her and her stories, Some of you are like, I'm not artistic at all. I have no desire to be artistic. I am not talking about being artistic, although I am talking about being artistic. Some of you don't realize you are artistic, but I'm actually talking about being creative, and that's different. You are a human being, which means you are given a God-given capacity to create as God creates. And in order to participate in new creation, today is Trinity Sunday. So we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's what we're really talking about. Have you ever asked yourself why God gives us, gives us his Spirit? Like, what is the purpose of Jesus breathing on the disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit? Is it so that they can be rock star preachers? 
and pastors? Is the point of having the Holy Spirit so that we can have really good church meetings where everyone feels tingly? Is that the point of this? Does God give you his spirit so that you can be a better Christian? Is that the point? I'd like to suggest to you that that isn't the point. What is the point is that God gives you his spirit so that you can be as creative as he was in Genesis chapter 1. That the same spirit that created the world is still participating in the renewal of the world, and the renewal of the world is an act of new creation, whereby we don't just experience reality, but we experience heaven's version of our reality. And this happens through acts of creativity. Here's the proof that you're a creative person. As a human being, we're going to go here. As a human being, you can have sex with someone of the opposite gender, and you can create a new human being. I am not trying to make a joke here. Literally, it says that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, he created them, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The evidence that you are a creative being, the evidence that you were made in the image and likeness of God, is that you are inherently able to create other creators. This is why I am not offended by the theory of evolution. Just so you know, the majority of Christians, our brothers and sisters who consider themselves Roman Catholic, have canonized the theory of evolution as the way God created the earth. You don't have to believe it's true, but you don't have to believe it's false either. The cool thing about the theory of evolution is that it's a creation that keeps creating itself. And this just seems like God. That he wouldn't just create things one way, but that he would create them in a way where they could continue to create more creation. And we see this evidenced in human beings made in his image and likeness who are given the creative capacity to make more people. So have you ever wondered why all pop music is obsessed with sex? Is it because all these pop stars are demonized? Maybe. <laughs> but the actual reason is because the ground floor of creativity is sexual expression. The very first thing God gave us as a gift, without apology, without recourse, the gifts of God are without repentance, is the ability to procreate. Sex is a creative act. It brings more people into the universe. People who didn't exist before human beings got together to make them, human beings made in the image and likeness of God. I said at the beginning of the service that humans made in the image and likeness of God are like God's self-portrait. They're his image. And not one of us, aside from Christ, is the fullness of God in human flesh. But at a certain angle and in a certain like, you look just like him. Thomas Merton said that the most profound encounter with God he ever had in his life as a mystic was standing on a street corner. I forget the address, but it's in Seven Story Mountain. He's standing on a street corner, and he said, at once I saw the thousands of people all around me, walking past me, totally oblivious of me, participating in their day, and I knew that every single one of them was made in the image and likeness of God, that I was looking at God expressing himself through creation. 
And I was overwhelmed and overcome with their holiness that God would choose to express himself in human form at this angle and from this light in this human person. We see this in Genesis 1 in the way that the earth is formless and void and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. The Spirit is with God, participating in creation, bringing substance and order out of chaos and nothingness. All of creation was essentially one giant water birth. Now, I don't quite get what's up with water births. I don't understand it. Some people are like, it's healthier for the baby. Really? You want your baby to have set a new diving record the moment it comes into the world? It doesn't make sense to me. It's easier on the mom. It's not easier on the mom. We're just going to have a pool party. Everyone bring their trunks, and then I'm going to push out a baby. It doesn't work that way. I once, when we were preparing to have a vi, I watched on YouTube, and you can see crazy stuff on YouTube. I watched a woman in preparation. The, the, our OBGYN was like, you, you should watch some videos so that you're aware of what's going to happen, Connor. I was like, okay, cool. It's my homework. So la-di-da, turn on YouTube. And I watched a lady give birth in a creek. She just stood there in a creek and gave birth. I was like, seriously? Your kid needs to be outside that quickly? You can't wait like three minutes to like wrap him in a towel or something? I don't understand water births, but if you're down for it, go for it. It's cool. It's how God birthed creation. Some gynecologist was looking at his waiting room and saw the fish tank with the deep sea diver in the aquarium and was like, hmm, wait a minute. You wouldn't happen to have a kiddie pool by any chance, would you? <laughs> the Spirit hovered over the waters, brought about new, th- new creation. And as the Spirit brought about new creation, and as order came from chaos, and as substance came from nothingness, everything that God created had a certain, a certain way it expressed itself. So, for example, the fish, God calls forth the fish from the water, and he calls forth the animals from the dry land. Everything in creation is connected to itself and to its kind. And this order to creation is understood through a word we call wisdom. Now, the thing about wisdom is that wisdom is often reduced down to A smart dude sitting on a chair, humming and hawing, brushing his beard, right? When I was a kid, wisdom was the owl from Winnie the Pooh. Mostly absent-minded, not connected with any of the other characters, confused most of the time. This is not what wisdom is. Before we get to John 16, I want to read Proverbs chapter 8. It says this, Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way at the crossroads She takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts long ago. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. 
when he had not yet made earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made, the firm, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Now I want to read you my text from John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says this to his disciples. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this you asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I love verse 29. It's like my favorite, it's like one of my favorite comedy moments. The disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I'm like, what? What Jesus said does not seem very plain to me. Verse 30, now we know that Sorry, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why you believe, we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said all these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world." So Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you my spirit, and my spirit will lead and guide you into all truth. I prefer the word reality. Truth is not just a series of concepts or abstract facts. Truth is the way the world actually is behind the way the world seems to be. So Jesus says, I'm going to give to you my spirit, and this spirit's going to lead and guide you, and you're going to not actually receive this spirit with great joy. You're going to receive this spirit with sorrow. My presence in your life is not going to make your life better. It's actually going to make your life worse. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed by that. Because it's going to be the way a woman is in labor. Because for like 95% of labor, things are getting worse. I've witnessed a couple. Trust me. It seems like things are getting worse. I can't speak from experience. But if there wasn't a baby at the end, it wouldn't be worth it. Jesus says, my spirit in your life is going to teach you what reality is like, and that's going to make you sorrowful. 
Because you're going to look at the world and you're going to see how broken it is. Everyone else finds joy in compromise. They tell themselves story and they find meaning by making their life about whatever they want. And so things are broken and haphazard and there's a lot of suffering, but they make their own meaning and they get away with it. They get away okay. It's a compromised, lesser form of joy. You're going to see the way the world really is. You're going to see my heavenly reality and it's going to break your heart. Because every time you see suffering, every time you see, see a child who hasn't eaten enough, every time you see another war zone, every time you see someone's broken body, you're going to go, that isn't the way the world is supposed to be. But take heart. Because what is happening inside you is like pregnancy. And you're going to spend time suffering with the way the world is, hoping for the way the world could be, and in a moment, an act of new creation is going to pass through you, and joy is going to be the result of your sorrow and suffering. In this world, you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Not just through the cross and resurrection, but through the act of new creation, because the Spirit is alive in you. What is the Holy Spirit given to you for? It's not given to you to make you a better Christian. It's not given to you so that you'll stop swearing in traffic. The Holy Spirit is given to you so that you will bring about new creation. Being creative is not just an option. It's a necessity. It's your highest calling. You may say, yourself, I'm not creative. Well, you are creative. If you're a father in the house, <laughs> like if you have a kid, you're creative. Your little creative scamp is running around coloring on the walls. My little creative scamp is finding creative places to hide my stuff. That's what he's into right now. I brought about a new, an act of new creation, and his form of creativity is taking the things that are precious to me and putting them where he forgets. <laughs> and then the joy on his face when he finds what he lost. It's like a widow's two mites. It's like, look, Dad, I found your wallet after he hid it for three days. I was like, thank you, son. I love it. Thank you for finding it for me. He's like, yeah, I did. I did find it. You may say to yourself, I'm not creative. But that is probably the most demonic lie you can hear. And the reason why is because it violates the very reason you were made in the image and likeness of God. Your creative instinct, your desire to take the world you know is out there and yet does not currently exist, your desire to take the hope of heaven before you and bring it into the world today, that is your creative instinct. And that is what gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in the world. And for too long, we've gathered as a church just trying to, we call the church a, like a hospital, right? We call the church like uh, the front lines of a military invasion. These are fine metaphors, but they aren't good enough for the high calling in Christ of bringing about new creation. You're given the Holy Spirit so that you can believe and see, even though it's going to suck for a while, that you are called to create new heavenly substance in a broken world. What does that mean? What does that look like? It looks like fresh chocolate chip cookies. 
I'm dead serious about this. How many of you have ever come into a house where fresh chocolate chip cookies are being baked and you sense heaven on earth? Uh, you may think I'm just trying to make a joke. I'm actually not trying to make a joke. You see, you had the flour and you had the sugar and you had the chocolate chips and they were all together but not together in the pantry in a form of disorder. And you took them and even though the cookies were formless and void and without substance, you put them in a, in a pot and you... In pot. <laughs> You probably didn't make them in a pot. You made them in a mixing bowl. This can show you how much I make cookies, right? You mix them together in a mixing bowl, and you put them in the oven, and as they're baking, the aroma spreads through your house. And then all the people who didn't do the work, didn't make the cookies, they smell the aroma of heaven, and they come to you, and they say, what must I do to be saved? No, that's not what they say. They say, they say, mmm, that smells good. Could I have one of those? And then they eat six of them. <laughs> Bringing heaven to earth looks like weeding your garden. Because anyone who's done gardening knows that nothing good grows by accident. Like if you just let a garden just hang out there, it's not like, oh, hey, turns out I got a new, new crop. Just happened all of a sudden, no problems. No, there's, in, there's work involved. There's labor involved. But as you work to make this garden you find that the universe is working with you. The sun shines and the rain falls. The seed you put in the ground, forgot about, suddenly now shoots forward out of the dirt. And you've brought about new substance in the universe. You say, well, whatever, it's just, it's just a little bit of oregano. It doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. It does matter. Because what you created, how you participated in creation, brought our world to look a little bit more like heaven's world. And some people are doing this by accident. Some people are doing this without even knowing that they're serving God. But every person that plants a garden and every housewife that bakes cookies and every dad that spends an extra hour making sure the van in the garage runs good for his family is participating in God's good work of bringing about new creation. And this is why the Spirit has been given to you. You are enclosed in the Trinity. You are enfolded in the Trinity with a high purpose and a high calling. It's to take the things about your life that don't make sense, the things that cause you suffering, and to see heaven beyond them. And watch as the Spirit turns your sorrow into joy. You want to know what you're called to? It's whatever you complain the most about. What do you complain the most about? Well, these politicians, they just don't know what they're doing. And if I was in charge, maybe you should be in charge. By the way, Brad's in my life group. He wasn't doing that before he ran for office. <laughs> Brad's not a complainer, right? He's a good man. But my point is this. The thing that makes you the most troubled and the most anxious and the most frustrated is probably the thing you're supposed to participate in. Because as an image bearer, you have God's creative capacity as a gift. Before you're perfect, before you figured your life out, you were given the gift of his creativity to bring about creation that shows the world new creation. You're called to bring new substance into the universe that proves heaven is on earth.
The old saying says there's no atheists in foxholes. But I also think that there's no atheists in delivery wards either. Nobody looks at the miracle of a new life and goes, this doesn't mean anything. This is just a random collection of molecules. This has the same value as my puppy. It's not true. We know in the act of the creation of a new human life, we know there is something sacred and eternally significant about human life. And it could be that you're called to write a book, and it could be that you're called to direct a movie, and it could be that you're called to bake cookies, and it could be that you're called to just be a dang good father or mother to your kids. But you have to understand that that high calling in Christ is participating in the new creation of heaven. I'm going to read the, the, what, what pastors and preachers have often called the fall. And I don't like calling it the fall because that's actually a platonic word. Plato came up with the fall of man. Something broken did happen in the garden. And I want to read that to you because it's actually the secret, the hidden secret of our redemption. This is why we feel driven and compelled by story to go out on adventures. This is why we have to go out into the world and make something and be something in order to bring back to the place we started something new that benefits our community. Genesis chapter 3 says this, verse 16, to the woman, he, oh actually sorry, before that I do want to say this. Before I read the text, there's a part in Genesis that says, remember, the serpent deceives Eve, and so God is trying to figure out what has happened in this story. And Adam goes, well, I did eat the fruit, but it's because the woman gave it to me. And the woman's like, well, I did eat the fruit, but it's because the serpent deceived me, right? So he starts by cursing the serpent. He says, you're going to crawl on, the belly all, on your belly all the days of your life. And, it's, and it says, the woman's going to have a seed or a child. And you're going to bruise the child's heel, but the child is going to crush your head. So we understand that this is a prophecy of Christ. Christ is the serpent killer. Christ is the one who is born of a woman and yet defeats the powers of darkness by dying. Death pierces him the way a serpent bites an ankle in the Genesis metaphor. But he rises again in victory over death, hell, and the grave. Amen? But you have to realize something other that's also special about this part of the story. Adam and Eve have sinned, and they brought, brought sin into the world. Have you ever wondered why they didn't just kill themselves? Like Adam and Eve are in the garden, right? They brought sin into the world. If they just end their life, then all the consequences are done. Why did Adam and Eve have children? Why did Adam and Eve bring kids into a messed up world that they created? Because God promised that Eve's child was going to defeat the evil they'd created. The act of bringing children into a world that's as broken, as messed up as ours is, is a prophetic act of defiance against death. Yes, Christ is the serpent killer, but every time a mother and a father make a baby, it doesn't matter whether you are in a 
perfect home or whether it's a blended family or whether it's a baby like Leisha has to deal with in the NICU that isn't wanted, that isn't loved by its biological parents and is left in the care of nurses until foster care gets involved. That child is also an act of new creation that defies the spirit of death. Every baby brought into the world, every, every child conceived is defiance against the broken way the world presently is. You may say to yourself, well, you know, I don't, I don't really have meaning and purpose. I was an accident. My parents didn't plan to have me. You're still made in the image and likeness of God. And you still defy the devil. <laughs> this is what God says to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you now. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 22, then the Lord said, behold, man has become like us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out and take the tree of life and eat it and live forever. God sent him out of the garden to work the ground which he was taken. He drove man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This does not sound very encouraging. But I have good news for you. Every time God brings about a curse, it's actually a blessing in disguise. These are not actually curses in the way we would understand curses. Like, God isn't like this, like, witch from Macbeth, like, I curse you. That's not what God's doing. God calls Adam and Eve to two different kinds of labor. Eve will experience pain in the labor of bringing about children. Adam will experience pain in the labor of digging up the ground. I'm telling you things that I'm hoping will inspire you to do things like bake cookies and write songs and paint and explore the world as an agent of new creation, but I have to tell you what's in your way. What's in your way is a lot of labor. There are two different forms of labor. There's the kind of labor that you participate in, like Adam digging in the dirt, and then there's the kind of labor that you yield to, like a woman in labor who's pregnant beyond her control. <laughs> the process started long ago, and it's happening with or without her. My wife says, we're not going to find out the names of the children because I need some incentive to push. I said, honey, that's not how it works. This baby is coming whether or not we find out what gender it is. Sometimes we suffer because we choose to do something hard. Sometimes we suffer because something has already happened to us that's outside of our control. I'm here to let you know that you are called to new creation and you are going to face labor. You are going to face work. It is not going to be easy. 
And the reason why a lot of people sit around and never fulfill their dreams, and the reason why a lot of people participate in a church culture that keeps them entertained and busy without really doing anything with their life, is because they're not aware of what happened in Genesis 3. God called men and women to work. And what I mean by work is not like, I got to clock in from 9 to 5. What I mean is anything that's significant eternally is going to cost you suffering. But for the joy set before you. Every, every woman in here who has been pregnant understands exactly what I'm talking about. You understand that the, the high calling of bringing a child into the world, the dignity that's found in the pain of sacrificing your body so that your child can come forth into the world. I know that there are men in here who have put in overtime. It wasn't because it was asked of you. It wasn't because you wanted to make a couple extra bucks. It's because you wanted to take pride in a job well done. And when you finished, long after everyone else went home, you wiped the sweat off your brow. You put your foot up on your shovel. And you just gave yourself a little contented nod. Like you did something that was right in the world. I want you to know that the suffering you face in life does not have the suffering you face in life is not meaningless. The brokenness in your relationships, the brokenness at your job, the brokenness that sometimes comes upon you without expecting it. The brokenness of my son kicked the sliding door of the van and the motor's broken. <laughs> and the price of fixing the door is more than the van. The suffering of I lose my wallet because my son is really sneaky. And I'm like pulling my hair out trying to find it. The suffering of looking at a bill and going, I don't actually have enough money to pay this and I don't want to go into debt. The suffering of helping at a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen and seeing the faces of people who are desperate and lonely and unable to work through their own problems. The suffering of a world wrong that needs to be made right. I'm here to let you know that it's worth it to put the work in. I don't want anyone here to commit creative suicide. To say that it's too much labor. It's too difficult. I want to write that book, but you know what? I'm not a very good writer, so I'm just not even going to try. I'm just going to play with the fonts on the computer. I want to start that business, but seven out of ten businesses fail, so I don't even, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. Why would I even start a business when seven out of ten businesses fail in their first year? That's stupid. Yeah, it's stupid, but it might be your high calling in Christ. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you may think that you're coming up with this stuff on your own. You may think that it doesn't have a higher purpose, but I'm here to tell you that that creative instinct that's within you is actually what connects you with the purpose of Jesus. And you may be struggling and suffering needlessly, not because those things aren't there for you to face, but because without a story and without a sense of calling, you'll just, um, you'll just surrender to it. You'll just be defeated by it. And then do you know what people who, who get defeated by their calling do? They distract themselves 
with hours of entertainment. They distract themselves with endless calories. They distract themselves with interpersonal drama. They make problems where problems don't need to be. They distract themselves with religious obligations. They spend a whole bunch of extra time at church. They distract themselves with secular obligations. They spend a whole lot of time away from church. They do everything they possibly can to avoid going on the adventure that God has called them to because they can't face the fact that beyond the thing that they know deep down they're supposed to do is a lot of conflict, and they're afraid they're not big enough to face it. The reason why the Spirit, when the Spirit is poured out, brings dreams and vision is everyone, old and young, are called to participate in the new creation of Christ. And the first thing you're going to face, the first thing you're going to face is suffering. Suffering that you choose or suffering that chooses you. But either way, if you see it through, if you go there and back again, like Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit, right? The little guy with the hairy feet who's way smaller and way less capable than everyone else, who happens to bring about the end of all evil. <laughs> he goes on this adventure, and he comes back to the same place he started, but the adventure has changed him because he was courageous enough to face the thing he was called to do. And I'm here to tell you that that is the calling that's available to you in Christ. The calling that God has made available to you is the calling to bring humanity back to the Garden of Eden. Everyone everywhere is suffering and they're looking for a little modicum of joy. But I'm letting you know that if you go through the hardship, you can participate with the same spirit that was giving God wise advice during creation. The woman, street preacher, who's standing on the corners shouting at everyone, hey, there's a better way of living in this world. Have you ever noticed that street preachers who yell at people are the first people that are ignored? The woman of wisdom is the spirit of God from the very beginning hovering over the waters saying, you guys can participate in new creation, but everyone ignores the first street preacher. Everyone ignores the little voice in the back of their head that says, I could make something of myself. I could make something of this world. I could look at that problem in the face and I could fix it. You know, what, you know what this looks like? He's going to hate that I'm going to do this. This looks like my friend Jordan spending hours and hours and hours It's so funny because I knew him before he made ice cream. I never thought he'd spend so many hours in the kitchen in his life. <laughs> but here's a man who spends hours and hours in a hot kitchen, slaving over milk as it gets warmer. I don't actually know how the process works. I know about as much as I, about ice cream as I do about cookies. Everything I know is like on the consumption end of things, not on the creation side of things. But he said to me, he goes, honestly, Connor, it's so busy, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. But I, I know this is what I need to do. And then because I'm in there all the time and because being in there is how I get to hang out with him, because he's in there all the time, <laughs> he's in there way more than I am, I watch his kids from the neighborhood get to come in and because they live in the neighborhood, they get to cash in these cards and take a free ice cream. 
And I read that verse that says that the spirit of wisdom was there at the beginning, delighting in the human beings God had made. And I see the face of an eight-year-old kid who's wearing old shoes that were probably found in a dumpster or purchased at a thrift store, get a scoop of the world's best ice cream for free. And I think to myself, that's what heaven looks like. And the hours of slaving over a stove suddenly become worth it. Let me read you this quote in closing. It's often attributed to Nelson Mandela, but it's actually by a woman named Mar Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. You are God's masterpiece. Just as you are. Just by living and breathing, going about your day, heading to work, fighting through the crazy torrent of the mall around Christmas time, going over to a friend's house for supper. You existing is enough to reveal who God is. I want you to know that. But I also want you to know that you have been given the Spirit of God who proceeds from the Father <laughs> to bring about new creation. And that thing that scares you, that thing that troubles you, that thing deep down you know you're called to change, I would like, so humbly, for today to be the day that you decide, I'm going to do it. Quit waiting for someone else to kick you in the butt. Quit waiting for someone else to do it. Step out into the unknown. Take a leap of faith. Embrace the suffering. It's going to suck for a long time, Jesus says, like a woman in labor. But take heart, for he has overcome the world. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult like a man toiling in the dirt that doesn't seem to yield to his will. But it's going to be worth it. Because if it creates a way back to the garden, if it creates a way back so that people can flourish in Eden, it's going to be worth it. And you playing small does the world no favors. You distracting yourself with religious obligations and entertainment on Netflix does the world no favors. You are called as an image bearer to bring about new creation. So dream again. Be envisioned. Be inspired. Do that crazy thing that you've always wanted to do. Open up a paint studio for cats if you want to. <laughs> whatever it is. Whatever it takes. Please. The Spirit was your yes. The Holy Spirit given, being given to you was God's yes to you. 
You have a green light. You have permission to participate in the story Jesus is telling through his life, which is, behold, I am making all things new. 